We are back in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38 this morning. A short little section in this uh, series of encounters between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, in all of these encounters, most of the action of the scribes and the Pharisees was negative. They were on the offensive. They were looking for ways to catch Jesus either breaking the law or somehow being inauthentic in his message, speaking one thing but doing something else. And they were doing that because they wanted to discredit his message. They wanted to discredit who he was so that they could break his followers away from him. Uh, Because the more people followed Jesus, the less people wanted to follow the scribes and the Pharisees. So, uh, needless to say, Jesus was the one person that they could not trip up with their questions and accusations. So, with that intro, if you've all managed to find Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, I'm going to ask you all to stand and take a look at God's Word with me here. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Father, as we once again approach your word this morning, help us to be the the disciples, the students, the hearers that you want us to be. Help us to understand how we can take this message today and to apply it, not just to our lives, but to our mission to go out and to share the gospel with the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. So, Matthew tells us that some of the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. There's only some of them. Now, whether Matthew's saying that only some of them were present, it wasn't all of the scribes and the Pharisees, or it was only some of those who were present, that's kind of splitting hairs, it doesn't really matter. On the surface, this doesn't sound like a bad thing. Because they said, teacher, show us a sign. We want to see. They were asking this young rabbi who was making claims that at least made him out to be a prophet. They're asking him for a sign. Now that's perfectly in line with God's word. God said in the Old Testament that if a prophet speaks... And what he prophesies does not come to pass, then he is what? A false prophet, and he needs to be put to death. So on the surface, this doesn't sound like a bad thing. They're asking a prophet for a sign. However, if you step back and look at that request for just a second, you can see the problem. Roll back to verse 22. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. 
Roll back a little bit further. Verse 9, he went on from there and entered the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus healed the man. And then Jesus withdrew. Verse 15, many followed him, and he healed them all. Do you see the problem? Teacher, give us a sign. Are you blind? Which is why Jesus responded the way he did. I mean, it, 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 were they asking for like a an Elijah and Mount Carmel type episode? You know, where Elijah shows off God's power and he starts picking on the prophets of Baal? Is that what they wanted? Did they want Jesus to make them out to be the prophets of Baal? Or, or maybe they wanted a Moses parting the Red Sea sort of thing. Maybe Jesus going up to the shore of the Galilee and parting it. And then drowning all of it. Maybe that's what they were looking for. I don't know. What more did they need to acknowledge who Jesus was? And so Jesus asked, answered them. Probably not the way they expected I have to imagine that they were either looking for Jesus to do something that would show them what they were looking for, a solid, yes, I will give you a sign so that you can know that I am a prophet sent by God, or a no, I'm not going to give you a sign, straight up. Just no, you've already missed everything that I've done. But if he said no, that would have enabled them to cast doubt on who he was. Because then they could say to the, pa- the people, see, look, here's a prophet, but he's not willing to give us a sign. What's he trying to hide? So Jesus says, verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, all righty then. So he said, yes, I will give you a sign, but no, it's not going to be right now. But before he does that, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. This is a, a, an accusation that hits at the heart of the the, the very... This is the core of the people of Israel. This is the core of humanity, really. The the sin of the people of Israel, that they were looking for a sign. They were looking for a sign that would confirm what they already thought. And lest we think that we're somehow immune from the same thing, we have to remember that Israel was the people of God. Who, which, which population of people had God's written revelation. Israel. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books. At least that's what conservative scholars agree with. You know, there are some out there who've said otherwise, but we'll go with Moses wrote those. And Joshua wrote the next one. And we don't know who wrote Judges, but we know that it was God's revelation and the Jews had it. All the way through all the Old Testament prophets, They had all of the books, and yet they were seeking after a sign. It's kind of like the joke, the guy who finds himself caught in the middle of a flood. This is particularly appropriate for the last couple of weeks, right? 
the guy who finds himself in the middle of a flood, he's hanging from a tree, and he says, God, please help. And a guy in a boat comes by. He says, dude, jump in. No, I'm waiting for God to save me. So the boat goes past. Another boat comes by. Come on, jump in. No, I'm convinced God's going to save me. And then the man drowns. So he's standing before God. God, why didn't you save me? Well, I sent two boats. <laughs> what more do you want? This is the situation. The people of Israel had all of the signs that they needed, and yet they turned towards idolatry. They worshipped other gods. And, and before you think, well, the Pharisees didn't. They worshipped the God of Israel. No, they worshipped the God of their self-righteousness. They worshipped the God of their holiness. And that's what idolatry really is. When we look at people who worship other gods, we look at uh, Muslims, for example, and I'm not picking on Muslims for any reason other than they are indicative of this problem. When you worship a God who says you have to be good versus being bad in order to make it to paradise, you have a level of good you have to follow, and there's, you have to work for it, who does that put in charge of your salvation? You! So who does that make God? You! All idolatry comes down to worshiping self. I want to be the one in charge. And I don't care what religion or non-religion you look at. That's the case. And that's what the Pharisees had done. And you know, that's what people in the church do too. Is we worship the stuff that we do for God instead of worshiping God who does for us. So while the, the Jews weren't in the, practice, or the business of practicing all of the evil that they could possibly practice, they had perverted and corrupted the law of God to serve their own desires. The scribes and the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the people who knew what the law said. The law says you will not work on the Sabbath to keep people from working on the Sabbath. If you walk more than a mile away from your home on the Sabbath, that means you have done work. Piece of cake, that's easy. But I need to go someplace that's two miles away. And I have to go there on the Sabbath. How do I get there? I can't take a donkey because that's making an animal work. And the law says that the animals aren't supposed to work either. So how do I get there if I have to? Well, you know, this, this here book, this is part of my home. This is my property. So if on the day before the Sabbath I take this and I put it a mile away from my house, then I can walk from my house to the book, and then I can walk from the book to the extra mile. So I'm not breaking the law. Really? Flipping through Facebook yesterday, and I came across a video. This judge has been making his rounds on the internet lately. And it was a traffic court. The lady got a parking ticket. The sign on the parking sign said no parking between the hours of X and 10 p.m. I don't remember, it was like 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. She got a ticket because she parked there before 10 p.m. The time stamped on the ticket, 9.59 and 38 seconds. The 
that cop was following the letter of the law. That is not the spirit and intent of the law. Right? That's what the Pharisees had done. They had taken God's law and bent the letter in order to fit their interpretation, their self-righteousness. They tithed on the herbs in their garden, but they ignored the weightier matters of the law, such as mercy and tending for the sick and tending for the poor. Well, sorry, Mom and Dad, I know it, it really, it's, it's horrible that you don't have enough income to live, but uh, I can't help you with that because I'm giving it all to the church. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't honor God at all. And so when Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, who is he drawing the parallel with for the scribes and the Pharisees? Yeah, who did Jonah go to talk to? Yeah, the Ninevites. Yeah, they were a great group of people, right? No, they were evil, they were wicked, they were the enemies of the Jews. The sign of Jonah, the scribes and the Pharisees understand the context of evil and adulterous immediately. When he says an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign, and you're going to get the sign of Jonah. Hey, wait. Are you comparing us to those Ninevites? Uh, yup. Exactly. The sign that he references, that Jonah being in the belly of the fish and Jesus is going to be in the ground for three days, three nights, it, it, that's, he's talking about his death, right? And ultimately, it doesn't matter. What Jesus is saying basically is, I could recreate the earth in front of you and you still wouldn't believe me. But instead, he kind of pokes at them. Jonah was sent to the Ninevites to warn them. What was Jonah's message? Repent or else, right? Now, I will admit, I raised kids during the time of the, the Veggie Tales, so my picture of Jonah and the Ninevites is a picture of, of uh, uh, talking asparagus and a bunch of vegetables that slap people with fish. That's just, if you've never seen it before, go look it up. I think it's on Netflix. But the Ninevites were not good people. And God sent Jonah to tell them, repent or I'm going to destroy your city. And Jonah did everything he could to avoid going to the Ninevites. He jumped on a boat sailing the other direction. And the storm came up. And they almost died. Until Jonah said, okay, it's my fault. Because I'm running from God. So the sailors threw him overboard, and that's where the fish shows up, and he, he's in the belly of the fish, and there's a lot of debate. And Well, was it a whale? Was it really a fish? You know what? It really doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, he took an underwater trip in the belly of an aquatic animal for three days before that animal spit him back up on the beach, and he made a very sodden, smelly walk to Nineveh. <laughs> Yuck. And when he showed up in Nineveh, he didn't show up with joy. God just delivered me. No, he showed up like this. I have a message from God. Quit being jerks or he's going to destroy your city. I'm going away now. And he went and he sat on the hillside waiting for God to destroy him. 
And when God didn't destroy him, how did Jonah respond? See, God, I knew it. You were so generous and so merciful that you were going to forgive them if they repented. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Because I knew they would repent and you'd let them off the hook. Wow. Would it be better to be Jonah or better to be a Ninevite? The Ninevites at least heard the message of God and repented, right? Look at what Jesus says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus isn't preaching a message of repentance with a begrudging attitude. Jesus is coming to God's people saying, hey, y'all missed the boat. You've missed the point with the law here. You've kind of, you kind of turned a little bit and went off on your own. This isn't the right way. And they're fighting him at every step. So this picture that Jesus, I, I can see this picture in my head. I'm a very visual kind of person. You can ask Steph if she's trying to explain something to me. I got to have a picture. It ain't going to work, right? But when I read stories like this, I see a picture in my head. So I see the scribes and the Pharisees seated in the throne room of God for the judgment, and in the gallery behind them, I see the men of Nineveh. And as soon as the scribes and the Pharisees stand up to face their judgment, I can hear the guys from Nineveh in the gallery, just like in a courtroom today, condemn them because they wouldn't even listen when their prophet came, and we did. How do you think that fit the picture of the Pharisees in their self-righteousness? Hey, wait. Wait a minute. The Jews had abandoned God's law. They thought they were keeping it. But at the heart of God's law, if you think about the way Jesus has summed up the law in multiple occasions in the New Testament, Jesus says the law is love God with everything you've got and love people like you love yourself. And outside of those psychological disorders where people don't love themselves and they, they're, they're, they harm themselves and that kind of stuff, right? We all understand what it means to love ourselves. Given the choice, would you live in a house that has electricity, indoor plumbing, and central air conditioning in South Mississippi? Or would you prefer to live out in the trees under a bush in the weather that we've been having for the last couple of weeks? We all would, right? I don't care how much of a nature lover you are. I haven't met that much of a nature lover down here in Mississippi in July. Right? Would you rather have a full belly or an empty stomach? Would you you rather have enough money to live on or be wondering where your next meal's coming from? You get my point here, right? We all want that best for ourselves. And when Jesus says, love God with all you've got and love others as you love yourself, that's what he's talking about, is wanting the best for others. But the Jews had missed that. And so the picture there of the men of Nineveh standing up and shouting in the courtroom, we repented, we aren't even your people. 
Bring judgment upon them that you would have brought upon us. The Pharisees would not repent because they didn't see the need. We looked at it in Sunday school this morning, the parable of the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee praying in the temple. The Pharisee who stands at the stands at the altar and says, Thank you, God, for making me not like him. I'm so good, you're lucky to have me in your family. What audacity to think that we could stand before God and say, He's blessed because of us. Whew. Wow. And Jesus pulls another example up. It says, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. This is a royal figure from Ethiopia, that region of Africa. He uses her to illustrate the foolishness of the scribes and the, the Pharisees. This Gentile queen, literally, if you go back and look at, uh, I believe it's in First Kings uh, it's one of the two kings. I can't remember which one. I think it's first kings. Um, is it? Okay. Uh, I looked at it yesterday, but phew, lots of holes in the memory. Um, she literally brought thousands of people with her in her caravan to come listen to the wisdom of Solomon. She brought retainers and servants and, and gold and jewels and, and, and wood you know, rich, you know, we don't think that's a big deal, but Israel's the desert. <laughs> they don't grow a lot of trees there. What they do grow is olive trees, and olive trees aren't worth a whole lot for furniture. Of course, they are nowadays because everybody's into the, the natural-looking furniture and everything, but they're naughty. And... But she brought cedar, and she brought oak and pine, and she brought wood that was worth something, and, and gold and precious gems and all of this stuff just to hear... The wisdom of Solomon that, that was proclaimed all over the place. You've got to come see this guy Solomon. He's so wise. And when she got there, she heard him. She proclaimed, what I've heard is true. You really are wise beyond measure, beyond compare. And Jesus says she would rise up with this generation. So now you've got, on one side of the gallery, you've got the Ninevites standing up, shouting, condemn the... Condemn the Jews, we repented, and, and you, you, we still got judged. They, they're your people and they're not repent. And then on the other side, you've got the Queen of Sheba standing up, condemning them because they're fools. There's a real difference in the way people react to the message of the cross. Those whose hearts have been changed, those who've had their conscience pricked by the Holy Spirit, those who've been reborn respond in repentance and love for God. Back to that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the tax collector would not look towards heaven. It was normal for a Jew to pray like this. Now we think that's weird because every one of us has been taught when we pray, what do we do? Bow your head and close your eyes, right? 
That is not so much a posture that is taught in Scripture. That is a posture that has been taught to help us because we have the attention span of a goldfish on crack. If I don't bow my head and close my eyes, my prayer is not going to last very long because I'm going to see something or I'm going to hear something or I'm going to think of something and I'm gone. For the Jew... To talk to God, to pray, was a posture like this. For the tax collector, he wouldn't even raise his eyes towards heaven because he knew how unworthy he was. There's a difference in the way people respond to the message of the cross. People who have hard hearts, hearts that are self-reliant, self-righteous, unconverted, will not, no matter how many times they hear, and no matter how many signs they see, will not repent and turn to God. Period. The biblical word for people like this is the word foolish. This isn't about ignorance. This isn't about a lack of knowledge. The scribes and the Pharisees knew God's word like none other. The scribes knew it literally letter by letter. And yet, they still missed it. This is about disbelief. This is about irreverence. This is about denying the sovereignty of God in your life and in the world, period. This is about serving yourself as God. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. That one's been coming for a while. Wisdom begins with awe, honor, respect, and fear of God. Now, we get uncomfortable when we think about that whole fear of God. We, we, We sing songs. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. Yeah, he calls me friend. But that is not to say God is my buddy. Okay, I have buddies at work. I have I have people at work that I hang out with, and we just we talk about idle. You know, yeah, you know that thing about idle speech that we looked at last week. We talk about stuff that's just stuff. I wouldn't dare walk into God's throne room the same way I walk into my boss's office. There is a measure of fear when I come before God. There is awe, there is respect, there is reverence. Wisdom is taking what you've seen and what you've heard, what you've read from the Word, what you've learned, what you've discerned by the power of the Holy Spirit, and synthesizing that into a life that grows to be more Christ-like. A life that honors God for being God. That's wisdom. The scribes and the Pharisees were not wise because they wanted to see another sign. Give us another sign because it wasn't enough that you were born of a virgin. It wasn't enough that you were born in a city that you had absolutely no power over whatsoever. 
You were born there because of the decree of Caesar. It's not enough that you were almost killed by Herod, as was prophesied that he would kill all those children. It wasn't enough that you have healed the leper and cleansed him. It's not enough that you've cast out demons. It's not enough that you have fed the five. It's not enough that you've done this. It's not enough that you've done this. Show us another sign. That's foolish. So what do we do with a passage like this? I mean, this isn't exactly a, uh, a passage that you could put into a box and say, you know, this is how to love your spouse according to God's Word. This is how to love your neighbor according to God. That's not what this is. What do we do with a passage like this? How do we take application from this? Well, first, I would encourage you to use caution. If you are the kind of person who's constantly asking God for a sign for something that is His will. If you feel led by the Spirit to do something, you may be, and it may be because of the way you were raised, it may be because of the churches you've been in, I don't know, but you may be the kind of person who's been taught that it's appropriate to put out a fleece. Don't. There is but one place in Scripture that that particular example is used. And that is with Gideon. And I will tell you it was a measure of God's mercy and grace that he did that for Gideon. That was not an example for us. That was not a normative behavior for God's people. If you're feeling led by the Spirit to do something but you want a sign to make sure it's from God, read the Bible. Pray. Talk to godly people. Because i got to tell you, if God is telling you to do something, He will confirm it. He'll confirm it from His Word. He'll confirm it in prayer. And He will confirm it by the mouths of other people, whether you like it or not. Because I've had a couple of those cases in my own life. And if you still have that temptation to ask for a sign, well, then you need to examine what's going on in your heart. Why do you want a sign? Is it because you don't want to do what God's telling you to do? So you're, you're looking for an out? Probably. Right? When, when I first got the, the, the holy hand slap across the back of my head that I needed to put a resume in for a pastoral position. It was the last thing I ever desired. The very first time I preached, it was a message on stewardship because I happened to be the unlucky sap, not that I believe in luck, but this is how it worked, who volunteered to teach a class on stewardship. And the pastor said, you know what? We really need a sermon on that. Why don't you go ahead and preach one? Okay. The preaching part wasn't the hard part. It was a piece of cake. And a very good friend of mine, afterwards, he pulled me out and he said, you know, you'd probably make a really good pastor. You know what I said? Are you out of your mind? Why? Because people... That's all. 
I'm not a people person. I don't... I, ministry, hospitals. You have to visit sick people in hospitals. I will tell you that there is no greater trauma for my childhood than when she worked in the nursing home and I had to visit people. To this day, makes my gut clench. You'd make a good pastor. Fast forward a year and a half later and God says, oh, by the way, put your resume in for that pastor position. What? No. I didn't ask him for a sign, but he kept giving them to me. (laughs) Over and over and over. Are you asking for a sign because you don't want to do it? Because you, you want God to prove himself to you? Really? I'd be careful what I ask for because of the sign of Jonah. Jonah didn't ask for a sign, but he sure did get one. Go to Nineveh. How about no? How about I jump on this boat and go the exact opposite direction? You're going to die. Throw them off the boat. Storm stops. There's a sign. You didn't ask for it. There's a sign. Swallowed by fish. Spit up on the shore. Headed the direction of Nineveh. There's your sign. Are you asking for a sign because you genuinely want to see God glorified? Regardless of how you might feel about the task. Now see, if that's the case, if if you really do want God to just to, to show himself so the other people can see. Fine, ask for a sign. Which one did the Pharisees fall into? <laughs> they didn't want to hear the message of Jesus. So they were asking for a sign to get out of it. The second thing I would tell you application-wise from this passage is that we have two examples And one mosquito. We have two examples in this passage. One is Jesus. One is the scribes and the Pharisees. The example of Jesus is the example of somebody who no matter how unpopular, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how much their desires may not have lined up with God's call, still obedient. And in the Pharisees, you had somebody whose question may have sounded okay at the start, but it wasn't. There are a lot of people in our lives who will respond that way to the gospel. Well, who are you to say that your way is the right way? I'm nobody. Well, if your God shows me a sign, He won't make a bit of difference. None whatsoever. There will be people who will ask for proof. They will seek after signs and wonders. And they will ignore the plain word of God. And when they do that, that doesn't mark our failure. But it shows us 
where their heart is right now. However, there is hope. As long as they have breath, that could change. See, throughout the entire New Testament, as many times as Jesus spoke harshly to the scribes and the Pharisees, as many times as he called them a brood of vipers, as many times as he condemned them for their self-righteousness and for their twisting of the law and all of the things that they did, even when we looked at it here a couple weeks ago, when he said that there is a sin that you cannot come back from. He never told them that they stood condemned. As long as we have breath, that's not our place to declare. What do you do with a person like that? You love them, and you share Jesus with them. Period. That's the application of this passage today. Jesus didn't cut them off. Jesus didn't say, you know what, you guys ain't going to listen no matter what I show you, so no, I'm not going to give you a sign. He said, you'll have a sign. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so too will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. You'll have a sign. But it ain't that sign that's going to cause you to believe. We need to be faithful in sharing the gospel and trust God to do the work.